They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Frankenstein podcast from Planet 13. We have got for you a special zombie episode today, so I hope you've got your pyjamas on, your popcorn ready, and your... <laughs> you didn't have a third thing planned, you just you just went right into it. I thought I was going to ad-lib. Didn't work. Yeah, has it ever? No. <laughs> welcome to Frankenstein podcast from Planet 13. We are the punk rock popcorn pyjama party podcast. We are a podcast that is all about horror punk music and the movies that inspire it. And as Andy has already uh, let you know, we're easing into a season of the living dead. Ooh, they're coming to get you, Barbara. And other things of that sort. So yeah, we watched the 1968 extremely low budget not technically a zombie movie. No one ever says zombie in this movie. They come from outer, uh, outer space radiation satellite has made the recently deceased return to a sort of semi-life where they feast upon the flesh of the living. Yeah, man, it's uh, ghouls, ghouls, ghouls in George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. And this is it, isn't it? This is where so many zombie tropes are codified. This is a real... Um, benchmark, I guess. A game changer, it's, I would say. Yeah, I, the only other zombie film I know of before this is I Zombie with Lugosi, I think. Mm. But I don't know anything about that film. But I kind of am aware that up until this point, zombies have been more in the realms of voodoo. Yeah, I think that's sort of the origin of the term. Whereas this is kind of the first time we've got what we've now become used to, what's become a trope of the entire world being overrun. By the living dead, the zombies, uh, brainless, mindless, compelled by an impulse simply to feed on the flesh of the living. Uh, this was it. This was where that really sort of came from. And they just did it for an incredibly low budget. And it ended up being one of the most uh, financially successful films ever made at the time because of what an amazing return. Not for George A. Romero, though, who didn't know anything about distribution law, apparently. Failed <laughs> to even copyright his own movie. Um, and from what I saw quickly, got kind of screwed out of basically all the profits of this film. It's public domain, isn't it? Which is why you so often see people watching it in other horror movies. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I know there's a lot of, like, of the dead sequels that aren't anything to do with Romero. Um, because you seemingly can just do any film and slap of the dead on it, and you won't face any copyright issues, I believe. Is that also why there was a remake in 1990? Was he involved in that, the Tom Savini directed remake? I don't know. I know he wanted Tom Savini for the original, but he couldn't get him, because Tom Savini was off in Vietnam, being an official war photographer. Uh, yeah, that is true. That is an interesting fact. But Savini did do the effects for uh, Dawn of the Dead. Yes. This concludes George A. Romero facts for now. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, we've kind of got very excited to talk about Night of the Dead and maybe even failed to introduce ourselves properly. Do you want to roll back or do you want to just roll forward? Uh, let's roll forward. All right. Andy, what did you think 
of Night of the Living Dead. I've seen it a few times. I've always preferred the 1990 remake to the original. Spoiler alert, I think I probably still do. But it's it's hard not to appreciate just how important this film is to the horror and how important it has been really to filmmaking in general. It's kind of like a guerrilla uh, film in the way that John Carpenter uh, et al. sort of... Uh, so it just made it for low to no budget. Yeah, and you could tell like some of the acting is pretty poor, really. Oh, really? I have to say that the acting was one of the things I thought was really good. I thought that... I don't know if he's like a sheriff of like the local militia or whatever, but I found his acting to be very like, I'm reading off lines from the script and I'm not really thinking about what they mean. Um, oh, which... that's so interesting because I found that character so convincing and we're getting ahead of ourselves. We can talk about this a bit more later. Okay. Yeah, I, I really liked it. I really liked the film. It's It's got a lot to say. It's kind of difficult to talk about, really, because it broaches a lot of subject matter that even now people aren't really comfortable broaching. Maybe it's got actually harder to broach the subject matter now. I don't know. Oh, you mean because uh, the main character, Ben, is played by an African-American actor? Yeah, I mean, that it, it seems to sort of... You don't have to read between the lines much to see that this is about a black guy and a white woman holed up in a house where then a white guy has a real power struggle with the black guy. And then, I mean, we, am I just going to talk about the end straight away here? Yeah, spoiler alert for this 50-plus-year-old movie. <laughs> uh, in the end, a group of white people with, you know, like, rabid dogs and guns who are out hunting humans uh, decide to, you know, they, they shoot Ben, who is a black guy, without checking if he's a zombie first. Uh, maybe they're just caught up in the thrill of the hunt. Maybe they don't care if he's a zombie or not. You know, I feel like it... it it's hard not to see a kind of racial element to this film, right? Yeah, so in interviews... Uh, Romero and some other people involved in making the film said, like, well, actually, this actor was just the best person to portray Ben, which I do believe. But then knowing how political Romero got with the Of the Dead series, you know, the very next one, Dawn of the Dead, is super political, very critical of consumerist culture. It seems unlikely to me that he didn't think about the impact of casting a black lead at a time where... That wasn't that commonly done, especially not in a role where, you know, that's not all his character's all about. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And to be honest, no offense to Romero, he's great. He can also say what he wants, but at the end of the day, death of the artist, like, we can interpret his movies however we're going to interpret them. And when you've got a all-white group of good old boys with guns and hunting dogs going out hunting humans, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to read into that. So I had never seen this film before. And the first thing I'll say is I was really, really surprised by how much I enjoyed it. And I have lots and lots of things to to say about it and what I liked about it. But I did come into it knowing that it had a black lead and that some people had sort of said, like, it has a bit of a, a commentary on race relations in the, in the States and 1968 was like a a pretty important time uh, for that. Uh, MLK was assassinated just before this movie was sort of finalised. But So I was watching it and trying to work out what I thought it was about. And perhaps this is just me sort of like beating an old drum of mine or something, but it feels to me like it has a little bit of a Vietnam angle to it. Uh, but perhaps like an unusually hawkish one. 
like I think you, there's a potential reading of this film where zombies sort of represent communists and you've got this hand-wringing character who sort of doesn't want the communists to get into the house, doesn't want the zombies to get into the house, but also doesn't want to do anything or make any meaningful contribution to the effort, isn't prepared to get his hands dirty, is kind of cowardly, is prepared to let a black guy get the take the majority of the risk. Mm, interesting. You know, at a time where the Vietnam War would have been very much in people's minds i did see that as one potential reading i have no idea what romero's position was on the conflict but i i did think there was this there was definitely a very strong dynamic between ben and mr cooper as a kind of someone who ben as someone who wanted to take action and increase the opportunities to change the situation versus mr cooper who really just wanted to put his head in the sand and and get away from the danger yeah, he wanted to lock himself in the basement. Where he b- believed himself to be safe. But just like America's involvement in Vietnam, there's no exit strategy. <laughs> and also, although he didn't know it, he would have been locking himself in the basement with a threat. Yeah, like threat the... comes from within inside the family unit. Yeah, the younger generation. Yeah, wow. So they're, gonna, they're literally going to eat you. Yeah, so I, you know. There's a lot going on in this film. Yeah. This is not a straight up and down zombie movie. No, not at all. Um, and it really, like, that was something that I just really enjoyed about it. Because in a lot of ways, like some of the other things that we've watched for this podcast, the horror film element of it is almost on the back burner for most of the film. Like, it does have these, you know, it has some effects. They're very cheaply done, but, you know, you have the, the hordes of zombies eating entrails and stuff and some gore that was uh, um, chocolate syrup <laughs> apparently yeah it's honey roast ham covered in chocolate syrup that sounds quite good uh, apparently it was rancid oh <laughs> i'm disappointed <laughs> but really it's this very like tensely plotted power struggle between various people who have different levels of influence over each other so there's this struggle between ben and mr cooper and then Mr. Cooper's wife, Helen, who has her own agency within the situation. And then uh, there's also Barbara is there. Yeah, fucking Barbara. God, she's, uh, well, she's shell-shocked from the start, I guess. And she's basically then in a traumatised state for the rest of the film that renders her completely, utterly useless as a leading lady. She spends most of the film sat down on a couch, just dazed. Um, which I suppose is probably quite a realistic portrayal yeah. of, of a reaction to that situation, but it doesn't make for very compelling watching, I've got to say. You definitely don't find yourself sort of rooting for her. No. Um, yeah, I agree with you that, you know, it's it, there's a sense of her being completely traumatised by the experience, which is, you know, has a great sense of realism to it, but you can't help but be annoyed at her. You know, other people are also having difficult experiences and she's not able to to help at all. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's realistic and, you know, I'm not about to tell anyone real or fictional how to handle their trauma, but certainly, like, as a watcher of the film, you're just thinking, like, just, you know, just do something. Yeah, uh, for God's sake, do something. Especially, there's two other named women characters in this and they are both quite active. 
yeah. in the way they respond to situations. Judy is maybe like a bit more impulsive and younger and ends up getting herself into deciding to leave the house when she didn't have to and ending up in an accident. And then you've got Helen Cooper, who's more sarcastic and sometimes even a bit manipulative, but she has like this very strong motivation in the form of her sick child in the basement. So you had never seen this movie before, but it sounds to me like you really enjoyed it. Did you have a favourite scene or a favourite character? My favourite character was probably Helen Cooper. I had a few favourite scenes. Um, One that I would say is like a very classically horror one. And then two that are related to each other that I just thought were really like creatively done. So I'll talk about those first. What I really liked was the scenes where the characters in the house were watching TV. And we saw this kind of TV bordered shot of like television interviews, like television news. Um, I just thought those were really well done. And relating to what we were talking about before, I thought the sheriff character when he was interviewed on the TV news seemed sort of like a real guy that was awkward being in front of a camera. Which yeah, I, I mean, suppose he maybe did. <laughs> maybe he was a guy that was awkward <laughs> feeling being in front of a camera. But to me that made him seem really real. Like uh the the news reporters like are they slow moving creatures and he just goes like yep they're uh the dead (laughs) (laughs) and it just seemed like you know if you were a real person who was kind of nervous being interviewed and you i can imagine you know the character kind of saying that and then being like what do you say that for inside his head yeah maybe yeah maybe i'm completely wrong maybe it was a tour de force of acting and And it was so well acted i thought (laughs) this guy's a rank amateur And then there was also a different one of those where they were interviewing three people who just met a kind of like high level emergency meeting and they were all talking over each other and... Mm. Yeah, that was pretty good. You could tell that one of the characters was kind of angry with the other one for giving away too much information to the press, but they didn't really explicitly state it. He was just kind of like, well, you know, we haven't discussed that fully yet, kind of thing, like elbowing him in the ribs verbally. Yeah, it was all just done in this way that I thought was quite light touch. And yeah. I feel like if you did similar scenes in a movie now, firstly, there's no way they would have been done just by pointing the movie camera at a TV screen kind of thing. You know, it would have cut away to that really happening yeah, and showing the film crew and stuff. And also it just would have been so much more handholdy with what the scene was telling you. Yeah. It would have made it way more obvious, whereas I think this just had, like, a real delicacy to the way it was done, and I thought I really liked it as a way to kind of quite cheaply give us a lot of information without wasting a ton of time. Yeah, it actually gives away more information than I remember. I don't remember all this talk of satellites from Venus carrying space radiation being as prominent in the film as it actually is. I remember thinking, oh, there's no explanation for why the dead return to life. They just do. But actually, there seems to be a pretty... There's there's quite a consensus in the film that it's because of space radiation. Yeah, that's maybe... I mean, it's certainly a little bit corny. Yeah, but... a bit H.G. Wells or something, isn't it, in a way? Yeah, supposedly the screenplay was quite based on the novel I Am Legend. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's a bit more of like a sci-fi angle rather than something that's completely conceived as a straight-up horror, which is obviously the direction that the series went, and from the next film we know that, you know, there's no more room in hell, 
so uh, that's that's why the dead are back or that's like the sort of the explanation that the poster offers at least even if it's not that heavily explained the other scene that i really liked in this i saw it coming but i know that the only reason i saw it coming is because i've seen quite a lot of zombie movies and this was quite an obvious direction for it to go but i think if you're watching this movie in 1968 you would not necessarily expect the wounded Mr. Cooper to stumble downstairs into the basement where his sick child has been, and then for his wife to discover the child kneeling over him eating his corpse. Yeah, it was pretty gruesome. There was some pretty gruesome bits in this film. When um, Lucy, I think her name was, and her boyfriend, the short fella. Judy. She was called Judy and her boyfriend was called Tom. Judy and Tom, they blow up in a a pickup truck. Yeah. get kind of like barbecued and then the zombies just chow down and you see arms and entrails getting gnawed on it was pretty i guess it's black and white but it's kind of like post most films being black and white i think 68 yeah definitely i'm still expecting that kind of like universal monsters level of gore which is to say not very much yeah so then when you see it it's it's quite shocking the first real moment of gore in the film where barbara goes upstairs in the house and encounters like this bloody skull with its eyeball all popped out. Yeah. Is yeah, really shocking. And you've actually come to something that I really enjoyed about this film. I don't think it was intentional by the filmmakers. I think it was the result of limitations of what they could afford to do and what they were able to do. But it really does harken back to universal style mm. films. I thought there was quite a lot of Hitchcock moments, especially at the beginning when Barbara's running around the graveyard looking all frightened. There's quite a lot of like Dutch angles. Dutch angles, yeah, like the close ups of the face. You said it was quite impressionistic when we were watching it. That's I was thinking more in terms of the impressionist films of I suppose like the thirties, things like the one I've seen is Metropolis. But you know, um even the Universal Monster movies, especially Dracula, the very early ones have this kind of very stilted element to them in the acting. And there were moments of this film that really had that, especially around Barbara, where she was sort of caught in her thought, where she acted in a way that was very exaggerated, but because it was filmed in black and white and at what seemed like kind of a bit of a low frame rate or something, it was quite jerky, it had that feeling of watching like an old newsreel or a silent film, even when it wasn't silent. And there were quite a lot of bits where Barbara at the start is on her own and she's not saying anything and there's just a lot of music that just really felt like watching a silent movie. We were watching it on DVD, Aerodrome video release, which is, I guess they turned turned into Arrow at some point. Mm. Um, So I don't know, there's probably some good restorations knocking around now. Probably see it on Blu-ray, upscaled and... I'd be interested to see how different it looks. Because I know, obviously, it must have been filmed quite cheaply, but I don't know how much it was just simply we were watching a bit of a... A choppy. Yeah, a bit of a shitty version. Um, Which kind of added to the creepiness of it, in a way. Uh, I've got a really creepy thought for you. Mm -hmm. The dead return to life. Yes. Those that are in graves, and also those that die, either through being attacked by the zombies or otherwise. Right? I think it's not, strictly speaking, those that are in graves. It's 
a news report says the unburied dead. Right. When Barbara first goes into that house, there is a decaying corpse at the top of the stairs that horrifies her. Mm. And Ben moves it out of the way. And I kept thinking, that corpse, they forgot about that corpse and it's going to come back to life. And it's going to be a big moment when you see that. Because it was a good special effect. It had this kind of like rotten face. Yeah, it looked properly scary. But it never does. Yeah, that's true. Because maybe that person wasn't dead. Maybe they were on the threshold. Can you imagine? Oh, so like, oh. Yeah, they were still alive. I, I guess the alternative is just that they'd been dead too long. It's definitely like this was a limitation of what they could afford to do. So they made it a plot point that it's like the recent dead. If they were dead too long, how did they die? Was there a murder at that house before this whole thing even started? It's just completely unrelated. Yeah. Yeah. Because why was that house empty? Yeah, it's all, it's all, um, it raises lots of questions. The questions that you don't have to answer because is it just a fun movie? If they got killed at the top of the stairs by a zombie, did the zombie walk downstairs and out the front door? <laughs> yeah, the zombie was like, do 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 do. Yeah, it's a bit of a creepy one. That's, that'll stick with you for a little bit, I think, when you think about that. Yeah, that's, you have done me a bit of a spook by telling me that they might not have been all the way dead. <laughs> yeah, so how do you rate this? Out of all the zombie films you've seen. So I think in terms of genres of horror movies, zombie movies are probably the kind I've seen the most. And for me, the benchmark, the one that I like the most, is Dawn of the Dead. The original? The original, yeah. Not the... Is it Zack Snyder? Oh, it might have been. Yeah, Zack Snyder remade it. or something. I remember that had a really cool opening scene and then just kind of... I got bored of it as it went on. Anyway, sorry, yes. uh, Uh... is this your favourite? Or Dawn of the Dead is your favourite? Dawn of the Dead is my favourite. Uh, and there's a few reasons for that. I just think it's engaging. It's got great characters. It's got a good blend of the character-driven stuff that you expect from a Romero film. Mm. Uh, along with, like, special effects effectively used. Like, there's a few good Savini. big... Yeah, some, a few good big gory scenes but they punctuate a story that's more about people and how people cope with a traumatic situation. Hey, baby, save it for episode two. (laughs) (laughs) This, basically, I feel, lays a lot of the groundwork for that. Mm. Like, it's kind of a thriller story dressed up in zombie clothing. Yeah, I, I rate it pretty highly. I certainly enjoy it a lot more than a lot of more recent zombie films not that long ago you and i watched army of the dead on netflix oh jesus which basically made us cancel our netflix subscription god please do not watch army of the dead it's like an anti-movie it's so poorly constructed and written it's so lazy but with such a huge budget oh it makes me so sad yeah yeah that was basically the opposite of this this was made for basically no money they did everything in camera there's no digital well obviously there's no digital effects because it was made in 68 but you know there's no like post-production really like they needed someone to throw molotov cocktails from a first floor window so they just did that (laughs) yeah and there was like a bunch of actors very close (laughs) they needed some zombies they just got some and yeah it all takes place in one location which you and i always enjoy in a film yep It's also got, like, something that I think of as a bit of a hallmark in a zombie film, a good one, where hope is kind of snatched away. They get the truck running, they get it all the way to the gas pump, they get the gas pump going, and then, through no one's real fault, there's an accident, and the truck catches on fire and two people are killed. Yeah. That whole bit, by the way, really reminded me of Resident Evil games. I couldn't shake it. I thought, oh god, obviously, like, 
they must have watched Night of the Living Dead over and over again. Um, just like the kind of like, there's a key in the basement with a key ring on it that says gas pump. Now we know the gas pump is locked, but it's a few screens over. <laughs> we need to get the key to the gas pump and solve the puzzle and fill up the truck. I don't know. It just reminded me of Resident Evil games. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Yeah, I think the thing that's really important about this film is like the precedent that it sets for films that would come later. Yeah. Uh, you know, it establishes a lot of ideas about, you know, kill the brain, kill the ghoul, as they say. So you have to remove the head or destroy the brain. The idea of fire being an effective tool to use. Just the, the idea of these kind of flesh-hungry revenants. Yeah, they won't stop. They absolutely will not stop. Unless you pop a cat between the eyes. Yeah. The thing, we have mentioned this already, they don't use the word zombie at all. So no. I don't know if you could strictly call it a zombie movie, but obviously so many of the the rules established here come forward into what we now recognise. I've had this argument so many times. Because you're right, they don't say zombie. They're the recently deceased returning to life. They're the living dead. They're ghouls. They're flesh eaters. Uh, is 28 Days Later a zombie movie? What is a zombie? Maybe that's a discussion for another time. Maybe that's a discussion for this podcast right now. <laughs> okay, we're going to solve it once and for all. Okay, wait, wait, let me do the guitar noise thing. Okay, Georgia, what is a zombie? Um, You can't kill it and it wants to eat you. Is the Frankenstein monster a zombie? No, doesn't want to eat you, can be killed. Is the xenomorph a zombie? Does the xenomorph want to eat you? Uh, I guess not, no. I guess a zombie was alive once and is now in an altered state of alive. Like, it used to be a normal person, yeah. now it wants to eat you and it's extra hard to kill. Is the thing a zombie? No. Is Jason Voorhees a zombie? Not at first, but later. Ooh. Jason Zombies. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay, are wait. the things in Resident Evil zombies? They're infected with the T-virus. Yeah. Yes. Is the Nemesis a zombie? Nemesis is more like a biological... We oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, um, no. <laughs> All right. I feel I do. Look, a zombie is like pornography. I know it when I see it. <laughs> what about zombie pornography? Oh, I know that when I see it times two. Stay out of my bedroom drawers. Um, And to answer the 28 days later question. Yeah. The people who are infected with rage in 28 days later are... Functionally speaking, cinematically speaking, they are zombies. They used to be people. Now they want to hurt you. You can't kill them. Or it's harder to kill them. Even though they haven't technically died and then come back to life, hmm. they aren't going to get better. Which... Is there an argument then... Oh man, I'm really getting into the weeds here. Because you can cure someone of having T-virus. Yeah, can you cure somebody with zombieitis? I'd say, like, strictly speaking, probably you can't cure someone of being a zombie. 
I think this is a question that Day of the Dead might answer, but neither of us have seen it. Um, yeah, that's going to be... That's coming up in a few short weeks. And I think it may provide a little bit of answers to our questions. Or at least some answers to some questions. Or give us more brains to chew over. Mmm, delicious. Nom nom nom. So I think the time has come for us to discuss horror punk songs inspired by Night of the Living Dead. Now I don't know about you, but I had a different problem from usual this week. Usually I'm like, oh, can I find a song that's about Nightmare on Elm Street that isn't bad? Spoiler alert, I could not. <laughs> um, but in in on this occasion, finding songs that are about Night of the Living Dead, there are dozens. And lots of them are pretty freaking good. I had yeah. to make a pick over some, yeah, some songs that I quite like. Yeah, um, you're right, there are... There are dozens that mention Night of the Living Dead explicitly. There are hundreds more that sort of discuss the subject matter, but could be applicable to a lot of zombie movies. Which raises the question, why is this film so totemic to horror punk bands? Not that it shouldn't be, but why is it? What's cause in all this? <laughs> What's cause in all this? <laughs> um, yeah, I think it being sort of, quote-unquote, the first really influential zombie movie probably has something to do with it it's got quite an iconic title i can imagine that lots of people could make songs about the title without ever having even seen the film yeah but also i bet the film being you know not properly licensed meant that it was really easy to catch on late night cable or whatever yeah it's so iconic isn't it everyone knows night of the yeah if you say night of the and put any word or two words after it even uh, people who don't watch horror movies will kind of know what you mean yeah yeah i totally agree uh and it, i mean that's kind of an iconic horror movie title formation anyway right like from night of the comet to night of the lepus yeah but i'm just looking around the room at some of the posters we've got up now we've got the satanic rites of dracula but if you said to a normal person like oh yeah the satanic rites of SpongeBob SquarePants, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Please stay away from me. But if you said Night of the Living Sponge, they they know what you mean. Everyone gets it kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sorry, that's a weird tangent. So horror punk <laughs> and horror punk songs uh, are integral to the podcast, really. So let's talk about those. So you said you found dozens of songs that mention Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, yeah absolutely loads and i assume you had a similar experience or did you just go straight for one that you knew you were going to choose no I, well i'll i will shoot my shot i'll blow my load i will roll my head first uh i will get my boat um i went for at first frankenstein drag queens from planet 13 they only want to eat your brains but after watching the film i realized it doesn't it's not got the right fit it's not the right spirit because this is this is a film. It's hard to crack a beer and kick back and watch this film. It is a serious film with a, a lot to say, and I feel like the drag queens they only want to eat your brains wasn't the right fit for that. So I have instead gone for a classic Michael Graves era misfit song from Famous Monsters, "Hunting Humans," because I believe it's a little bit more. Is it from the zombies' perspective? 
or is it from the militia's perspective mm. kind of thing they're hunting humans uh they're killing time every day like because i get the impression in the film that the militia kind of loved it really didn't they yeah definitely which is a little bit morbid a little bit um it's, it's in bad taste they weren't treating the dead with dignity or respect. They were treating it as a kind of duck hunt uh, <laughs> kind of thing. And I think that the song Hunting Humans by the Misfits accurately represents the spirit of one of those kind of... Uh, I want to say lynch mob, but I don't know if that's a really bad thing to say. Mm. Well, I mean, in the context of what we were talking about before with the, the film's perspective on American race relations, maybe not. Yeah, like, okay, so the lyrics to Hunting Humans now. Upon this threshold of disaster, the birth of the eleventh plague, the fires burn at night, I begin to doubt the smell of burning flesh will ever fade away. Very serious apocalyptic shit, but kind of sang with a sort of wistful, romantic vibe. Like, yeah, let's crack a few beers and just go hunting humans. Whoa, it's killing time every day. And it does just right in the middle there. Night of the living dead. <laughs> <laughs> so it's you know they never one for subtext. Uh, well, I mean it's an absolutely brilliant song. I'm not about to be like, oh, a Michael Graves song from Famous Monsters. Not one of my faves. Yeah. Obviously, uh, from from moment one on this podcast, it's been known that I think Graves is the best Misfits singer, and I think that Famous Monsters is the best Misfits album. Agree. Agree. Uh, and yeah, it's, it is a banger. It's also, it's been a little while since we featured a Misfits song and it's been a really long time since we featured a good Misfits song because the last two we did were, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and then Return of the Fly. (laughs) Whoa, 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 whoa. Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay. That's dog shit. But Return of the Fly, that's a banger. It is, it is a banger, but it's not in the same it's for me. It's not on the same echelon as Hunting Humans. It's agreed. Agreed. Um, I feel I've been thinking about this loads, and one of the reasons why I think I like Graves is that Jerry only really wants to make do what basically, and then just speeds it up. But he just wants to make fifties music, and it doesn't. It, he's not as talented as other people who've done that as well and then Danzig his songs are so like raw and exciting they are really good but Mm. in the middle of those two you've got Graves who I just think had the right voice at the right time and the songs just had this energy that I really enjoy so I mean you have chosen a really really strong contender and I am going in a completely different direction. Uh, so I have chosen a band that I had never heard of until today when I decided to do a lot of research about um, songs about Night of the Living Dead. Always love to discover new bands. Always need more horror punk bands on the podcast. This is by a band called The Riptides, Canadian band. Cool name. Uh, from their album, Dropout, from 2002. This album, in addition to having... 23 tracks has got some of the best uh, song titles I've seen in a very long time. Hit me. Uh, Dot com asshole. (laughs) 
Very 2002. Emo motherfucker. <laughs> did, was, did emo exist in 2002? God. They seemed, they, they seemed to think so. Uh, I listened to this song and they pronounced it the American way, but they, there's a song on this album that I will pronounce, You're a Twat. Twat. They, they say twat. They say twat. Twat. Very twat. Su- that reminds me of like, The Sopranos, that. Yeah, it's a weird one. Also, like, people from the North American continent are more likely to use that word as, like, a noun, whereas we would just only use it as an insult. You wouldn't refer to the body part like that. Oh, my God, no. Can you imagine? No, but they do it. It's mad. (laughs) I would love to f*** your... (laughs) We can't leave that in the podcast, can we? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Mm. Anyway, we'll, we'll censor it. So they have, they have several tracks on this album that uh, reference zombies. They've got the creature that ate my brain, Dawn of the Dead, Zombie Night, and they also have a song called Night of the Living Dead that just rips. It's like so it's not just a clever name. The riptides rip. <laughs> they do. They rip. <laughs> Glad that cracked you up, but. Uh, we're being academic here. We're, we're, we're doing a serious. Uh, it's like war games. I've brought to the table hunting humans by the misfits. Yeah, you've brought like. I brought uh, out the big guns. Yeah, the big guns. I'm prepared to accept that maybe this little sort of um, like bordering on skate punk, Ramones inflected. I love that. Like, I love skate punk. I love the Ramones. It's speedy. It's. It's not got, like, a ton of thought involved in it. It's just really dumb fun. Maybe it can't go up against hunting humans, but I do really strongly recommend that anyone listening to this gives the Riptides a go, because I love it. I mean, the famous Monsters Graves album, to me, is, like Night of the Living Dead, the movie, totemic, iconic, sort of untouchable god-tier stuff. Mm, But consider this. Drop out by the Riptides, where there's no song on here that's got more than 8,000 listens on Spotify, is like Night of the Living Dead. It was made cheaply. It was made quick. Mm. It's got a punk aesthetic. It's, it's... Canadian. <laughs> we went to Tim Hortons for breakfast this very morning. Mm, that would explain why I chose a Canadian band. Yeah. <laughs> Still full of Timbits. Um, let's go for the Riptides. Oh, I haven't won in weeks. Let's go for the Riptides. I like the sound. Of, I like the cut of their jib. Mm, I also enjoy the cut of their jib. And look, Famous Monsters is going nowhere. That's sealed in marble as one of the greatest albums ever created. It's true. It seems very unlikely that we, someone who listens to our horror punk podcast, would be like, wow, I've got to check out Famous Monsters by the Misfits. <laughs> But maybe they'll check out Drop Out by the Riptides. Check out the Riptides, guys. Rip Riptides. Let me guide you to checking out the Riptides, guys. <laughs> All right. All right. Night of the Living Dead, 1968. George A. Romero. Mwah. Chef's Kiss. Excellent film. The Riptides, 2002. Night of the Living Dead. Mwah. Excellent song. Together, there you go. Wine, dine. Yep, there's your wine and cheese pairing for the evening from your horror punk sommeliers. Um, 
we I would actually like to take just a minute at the end. We can cut this out if we decide this episode runs long. Just to say we took a, a week off. We weren't we didn't release an episode last week. And that is because we have been doing a ton of other stuff. We've been taking a little break. But we did a ton of like horror related stuff this week that I thought it would just be fun to talk about. <laughs> Hell yeah, let's get into it. We went to the theatre. Yes. And we watched The Woman in Black. Yes. If you get a chance to go to the theatre to watch a play, especially if it's The Woman in Black, please go. Yeah. I had, I forgot how much I enjoyed going to the theatre because I don't do it often at all. And then for the last year and a half, it hasn't even been an option. Yeah. Uh, but, but The Woman in Black, tell me more. Yeah. So this was like a really interesting... I haven't seen the film, Uh I know there was a film with Daniel Radcliffe. we got to watch that film. Yeah. Um, I've seen it and knew it would scare you. Yeah, you said it was really scary. Obviously, like, a play is not going to be as scary as the film. I don't know why that's obvious, but it's just, you know, you're just sitting there like, oh, these people are just playing pretend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was really, really cool. They staged it in a really interesting way and they did, um, I guess, a sort of, like, fourth wall breaking kind of thing with it that I thought was really cool and creative uh, and even though we weren't very scared there were certainly a lot of really scared people in the audience oh my god which... there were some shrieks of terror coming from the seats in the rows behind us um, so it's been adapted sorry I'm just going to give a little bit of information about this it was adapted by Stephen Malatrat mm. and it was starring Oh shit, sorry, I thought this was a lot of information, but it's actually not that much. Uh, can you talk a bit more? Yeah, I can. Uh, so that was just a very cool experience to do something that was horror related, but wasn't just watching a film, and especially wasn't just watching a film at home. You know, you, you go out to the theatre, it's a bit more of a a fancy experience, I suppose, which was nice. Uh, but also, it has such a different energy. You do feel like you're present with the actors and you're sort of all part of something in a way that obviously a film can't do. So it also made me realise how rarely I've seen a horror movie at the cinema. We nearly always just watch them at home. Yeah. And I wonder how different it would be to watch a horror movie at the cinema. I did like, watch a horror movie at the pictures, and I can't remember what it is now. But it was quite scary. It was scarier. It was scarier. That makes sense, because it's kind yeah. of, like, bigger and more immersive. Yeah, we need to get, like, a soundbar or something, to be honest. Um, sorry, just to talk about The Woman in Black really quickly. We saw it at the Palace Theatre in Manchester. And it is starring Robert Goodale and Anthony Eden. And they were both excellent. Yeah, it was brilliant. But that's not all we've been up to. Yeah. We've also been playing a board game. Yeah, we got a horror movie themed board game. An officially licensed Universal Studios Monsters horror themed board game called Horrified. Oh. A cooperative game. A little bit, if you're a board game geek, kind of like we are, it's a little bit in the vein of a pandemic or Discworld's The Witches. Or Forbidden, Forbidden Island, Forbidden Desert, that Forbidden Sky. S- series of games. Yeah, where you're co- cooperating to save a village 
from being attacked by monsters and you're trying to save villagers while defeating the monsters by solving sort of contextual puzzles. A uh, really good game. We've played two games of it so far and it's got a lot of replay value. Yeah. And it's got all the classics are in there. The Mummy, The Invisible Man, The Wolf Man, Dracula, Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, it's got all your, your favourite side characters. Renfield. Renfield's in there. I love Renfield. Mm-hmm. Um, really good game. Yeah, I feel like tie-in games can go either way because, you know, I guess when Universal decide they're going to license their characters for a board game, it probably doesn't matter that much to them whether it's a good game or not. But this is a really good game. Uh, we, As you've said, we both really enjoy board games. Uh, I was very excited to to try this, and it really exceeded my expectations. I just also want to say the art is fantastic. Yeah, the design, it's got a lot of care put into it. This isn't a cheap, oh, fuck it, just throw something out, some licensed piece of crap out, and it'll sell based on the name. Someone's really took the time with this and really put some care and attention to detail in there. Yeah, it really feels like some love's gone into it. So there you go. There's some non-film, non-horror punk recommendations from us. Board games and going to the theatre. Well, also, you've been reading some books. Yeah, that's true, actually. we've um, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but for the last couple of months, I've been on a bit of a Stephen King kick. Yeah. Uh, I'd quite like us to maybe at some point do a bonus episode where we talk a bit more about Stephen King. But yeah, recently we both read Christine. Uh, you, I just finished reading Salem's Lot and you're reading that now. And then I also just finished reading The Dark Half, which I did not enjoy as much as Christine or Salem's Lot. Should we go into a bonus episode? Should we do a Stephen King bonus episode? Yeah, I'd really like to do that. And I'd also maybe like to do... A few episodes where we talk about the film adaptations. Yes. I don't want to be buried in Salem's lot. <laughs> yes, that famous song. Uh, <laughs> All right, we have gone really long, but I guess we had a lot to talk about. It's been fun. This week, yeah. And Bit it of makes... a serious one, maybe. Yeah. Not many jokes to be had with Night of the Living Dead. No, it was a bit more of a, a serious one, but I, I think it's... I suppose it's just a bit more of a serious film. Yeah. Thanks for having us, guys. Um, next week, no surprises. We're going to be doing Dawn of the Dead. Uh, let us know, in the meantime, if you know any good songs that will go with Dawn of the Dead. I've got a few buzzing around in my mind, but I'm always keen to find some new bands. Yeah, same. Uh, so, if you enjoyed listening to this, please do follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram at planet underscore one three underscore podcast on Twitter at planet one three podcast. And we're always hanging around on the horror punk subreddit. So find one of our posts and chat us up there. And if you want to check out the songs that we've talked about in this podcast, you can find them all on our Spotify playlist, Frankenstein playlist from planet 13. Yes. And until next time, we belong dead. Are they slow moving, Chief? Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up.